Welcome to the California Work Comp Report by RateFast. Speaking is your host, Corey Olson, and today is July 1st. I'm here with Dr. Richard Battelle, psychiatrist at UCSF Medical Center, to speak about opioids and addiction. How are you doing today, Rick? I'm, I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm back in the swing of working, and I've seen a number of patients, including some that are on opioids. So, And I had an opportunity to even ask them their opinion about some of these questions when I was working with them today, and got oh. some surprising answers. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's very good to know because that, that even, even more opens sort of our kind of perspective on what we're working with here. Um, so yeah, kind of following up on our previous podcast, we are talking about the opioid crisis in the United States and how it is and is not as it is sort of perceived in a lot of the media that comes out. You see news reports that come out and say the opioid crisis is rampant in the United States. And, and, you know, by and large, every doctor is just over prescribing opioids because, because they can, and they do. And, and our last podcast kind of gave me, it was an interview with Dr. John Alchemy and uh, John kind of had a more reserved opinion on the fact that yes, it is definitely happening but not every doctor is just tossing pills at people. And uh, Dr. Patel, you are a doctor who works with patients with addiction to opioids. Um, so that gives you a whole perspective on the, I, would, I don't want to say worst case scenario, but you know, the, the, when it does get bad enough for people, um, whether they were prescribed those opioids or whether they just got hooked. Do you work with patients also who... Are, are on opioids who were never prescribed? Yes. Well, I'm, I'm pretty lucky in the range of patients that I'm able to work physician here in San Francisco. also work as a professor of psychiatry at uh, San Francisco General Hospital under the umbrella of uh, University of California, San Francisco, teaching medical students and residents, and seeing some of the worst of the worst at San Francisco General Psychiatric Emergency Room and the medical ER. I've also been a medical director of a methadone clinic with an agency here in town, uh, and I see some private patients. So I've mm. really seen the spectrum of folks utilizing opioids for uh, good and bad here in San Francisco. Mm. And I think just by that introduction alone, you can see that there's not really one type of opioid patient. Absolutely. There's a whole wide range of people using these medications for different purposes. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I've seen some of it myself firsthand. Uh, I've had friends kind of very much go down that path. So yeah, mm -hmm. it is, it is everything. It is prescribed. It is, it is, you know, just interest. Um, yeah. and, and as you alluded to before uh, with Dr. Alchemy, who perhaps was on the first part of this focus on opioid podcast, um, it, I think that it is a little bit misconstrued in a lot of the media that the physicians are, uh, these villains taking advantage of individuals by prescribing them medications that will in fact harm them. I, I've never met in my almost 30 year career, a physician who intended to prescribe opioids to people to harm them. Yeah. Um, there's some pretty standard reasons we prescribe opioids to folks, but perhaps I can take a step back here and, and look at this, this overarching title of opioid crisis and pick it apart just a little bit to kind Thank of you. see what we're really looking at. I think that's one thing that I hear a lot about is, oh, those evil physicians prescribing opioids to get mm. people hooked. Mm. And it is true that physicians, although they're not evil, they certainly mm. do prescribe opioids. And there has been a 
slow rise in the number of opioids that are prescribed. Mm -hmm. And usually it's for several different purposes. You can almost break it down just for a couple different things. One is um, a lot of end-of-life treatment, a lot of hospice patients receive opioids to help ameliorate pain, discomfort, mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of folks, when they're going through the last stages of life, are mm -hmm. very just uncomfortable for reasons that are unknown to the people observing them. Mm -hmm. And opioids are very valuable to help um, decrease the pain, to help calm and quiet these uh, people. Mm -hmm. And of course, opioid treatment is accepted as a, as a real common mainstay in the treatment of pain. And I think without too much dispute, it is accepted in people that are having cancer-related pain. Yeah. And I think that's our own judgment and that cancer is the type of pain that maybe in our own minds is more severe or associated, also associated with end-of-life issues. Yeah. So in those instances, nobody really complains or questions. Mm. It's, when, it's when you're looking at the treatment of pain with folks that do not have cancer, non-cancer related mm. chronic pain yeah. from whether it's motor vehicle or other type of accidents. Yeah. Um, as people go on in years, almost everybody above the age of 50 will understand there's some pain associated mm. with living. Yeah. And for those that have had accidents or have had major surgeries that result in chronic pain, they also realize that they need to do something to help that just to function in the world. That's the population that um, has been questions by, questioned by politicians in the media, whether or not physicians are over-prescribing meds. However, there's, there's one other little part of this that, that, is, that isn't ignored, but doesn't have as much to do with physicians. And that's the fact that there is a rising number of individuals that are using heroin and receiving these medications on the street, hmm. whether they were prescribed by a physician for some other use, or perhaps they bought them off somebody on the street. Hmm. Um, people are using a, a lot more heroin because it's more readily available and cheaper unfortunately, what's been happening is that uh, people are becoming much better at synthesizing analogs of opioids. Yeah. So right now, heroin is an opioid drug made from morphine, which is from the seeds of different poppy plants. Yeah, yeah. And that's usually for pain relief. But for example, fentanyl is yeah. one of these synthetic, synthetic analogs of an opioid, which is about 50 times more powerful than heroin. Yeah. However, it's much, much cheaper to make. Oh. And so what's starting to happen is people are selling um, pills on the street that they're saying are Oxycontin, or they're mm. selling a heroin that's cut with fentanyl, mm. and these people use the usual amount that they use, yes. and they and, die. because and they die. Yeah. And they die. So that seems to be the major driver of a lot of the deaths from opioid, which seems to be the engine powering this quote opioid crisis that we're seeing now. Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a lot of people. Um, one that comes to mind is a uh, a a a, a hip hop artist uh, recently named by the name of Lil Peep, who that's uh, right, yeah, who took Xanax laced with fentanyl. And, uh, and Xanax is not an opioid; it's a benzo. But when mm -hmm. you combine these, or if mm -hmm. you take it instead, you're you're gonna stop breathing and. And, and die. Yeah, yeah. So that 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 definitely brings a lot of attention to it, and it, it also, in a way, it, it kind of becomes a forbidden fruit because uh, it's it's just always been sort of fashionable to be high or something like that, you know. And that that's where I, I've seen a lot of people surprisingly actually get into drugs in general because they're cool. 
maybe well, because you know, you know. and in in fact, well, that is true because it's edgy. It's it's mm-hmm. a little bit uh, you know mysterious, or it, and it's true that a lot of drugs, uh, including opioids, can trigger some of the more creative centers of the brain. And mm-hmm. it, and, and in fact, I should I should uh, I should edit that because it suppresses those centers of the brain that do not allow creativity mm. because we have, it seems to be the medial prefrontal cortex that's helps us be spontaneous, spontaneous and mm. improvisation and, and allows normal conversational speech. And there's a, I believe it's the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. That's almost like an editor. Somebody saying, Hey, don't say that, or be careful mm. what you say. And mm. by using these types of, of drugs, it actually suppresses that and may allow people to be more creative. Mm-hmm. However, I don't want to give anybody misinformation in thinking yeah. that if you use opioids, you'll become a, a rap star yeah. or more creative because the truth is, is for the most part, heroin and other opioid addictions are not that sexy. Uh, people yeah. end up going downhill. Uh, uh, they lose their ability to self-care. Yeah. And in fact, that's when we really run into addiction. Yeah. There's a difference between use and addiction. And an addiction yeah. is where you see yourself not taking care of yourself, not being able to cognitively function as well as you should be able to, mm-hmm. losing the, the social supports because people isolate and drift away just towards, towards their drug use. Yes, yes. I want to make a, I want to make a quick, quick point based off of the people using a drug because they think it will make them a star. Um, it's just a, a quote from a film that I saw about a, it's a documentary about a band the, uh, and it's an interview with a girlfriend of the singer of the band. And she said, well, I was trying to tell the guys in the band that, you know, all of the guys of the Rolling Stones were doing drugs too. Yes, true. But they were famous first. I think that's a very good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we all have a, a, an ability to be creative. Yeah. And as I said, it is true that a little bit of alcohol, a little bit of this, a little bit of that might, in fact, allow people, at least in the moment, to be more creative by perhaps shutting off those centers that are more critical about those spontaneous thoughts yeah. and ideas that are coming up. But that's just once in a while. Yeah. Uh, when you use these medications chronically, they are medications yeah. and drugs. Well, yeah, and it's drugs. hard to separate them sometimes yeah. What's yeah. What, because they're all chemicals that affect us. Exactly. That ends up suppressing the good parts that you want to come out so far as creativity as well. And, and life becomes normal for being on these things too. Well, that's, that's very true. And that's really when we start talking about some of the treatments that are available for once people have become, um, uh, you know, met the criteria for being dependent upon these substances, meaning that they really can't function otherwise. Mm. Um, that's where we start using other medications to treat them. And I do say other medications, not just because I'm a medical doctor and I like to prescribe medicines, mm. but most of the studies out there show, for example, in heroin addiction, if you try to come off heroin without using other medications such as methadone or buprenorphine mm-hmm. or naltrexone, there's a lot of mm-hmm. things available right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's about a 95% chance that you're going to relapse within two to four weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and I, part of the difficulty is depending on your own biology and how long you've been using opioid medications, the physical withdrawals can last from two weeks to upwards of a couple years. Wow. So it's not as if with other things, you know, I think cigarettes is probably one of the closest things yeah. with other with people talking about cravings as they go off into the future, you know, months and months past mm. when they've used last. Yeah. 
but it's not as strong. With opioids and with nicotine, people still have real cravings that drive them to get the drugs, even if it's been years since they've used last. Mm. Yeah, that's that's I hear that too. You see a lot of people who stop smoking and then they'll get back into it years later. Yeah, it doesn't take much for some of these people. Mm-hmm. And again, there's there's a reason they do it. It helps calm them. It may help at least uh, acutely help them focus and just feel good. Mm. Uh, and again, there's some real receptor buttons in the brain that makes that true. The opioids just don't hit pain receptors. They hit a whole ki- all kinds of things that help anxiety, help mm. depression. Yeah. And um you know, people coming off them feel anxious, depressed. Yeah. Is it all of those chemicals just rushing back in? Well, you know, I think there's, you know, you have to look at kind of a biopsychosocial model of this thing, meaning that we have to look at the biology, the person's psychology, kind of their software that makes them up from their experience, their parents, from their, the way they've lived their life, as well as the social atmosphere they're in. Mm-hmm. If you take somebody who is biologically predispositioned to using opioids, meaning that those, when you hit those opioid receptors, it's going to feel really, really good and help calm and focus them. They're going to be using them more than somebody else who just gets extraordinarily nauseous. Mm. And I've also known lots of individuals who have tried opioids, whether they're you know, trying it for the first time recreationally or using it after a dental procedure or whatever, mm-hmm. who get extraordinarily nauseous and feel really dysphoric yes. from the use of opioids. Yes. There's other people who take it and think, oh my goodness, they found, you know, the holy grail yeah. of, um, of help there. So that's the biological aspect of it. It has to do with um, a, a lot of things I'm not smart enough to know about, receptor densities and the, the way the minutia of the brain is formed. They're yeah. getting a little bit better at identifying the reward circuitry of the brain. That's pretty well established. But what mm. makes somebody more addicted than somebody else? That's still a little mysterious. If you live in a, a uh, if you come from a family that has a lot of dependency issues, you're more likely to have that receptor set up to make you more influenced by opioids. But also if you have the right or the wrong rather psychology, mm. meaning that you perhaps perhaps grown up in an atmosphere where things are very stressful or uh, grown up in an atmosphere where uh, it's very hard to relax or um, uh, for a number of reasons, people's psychological well-beings might lead them to using opioids because they psychologically, maybe there's nothing in their family regarding um, abuse and maybe you can Mm -hmm. find no genetic uh, genetic reasons that would lead to that, but psychologically, mm-hmm. um, they feel better. And then socially, if mm-hmm. you're in an atmosphere with a lot of rock musicians that are shooting heroin, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're more apt to use it than if you were in uh, an environment that wasn't so conducive to it. And that's exactly. what we're seeing a lot more where you're at out in Pennsylvania in the East Coast. Is there's just an influx of availability of heroin and opioids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I've I see people that are just sort of passed out here and there, you know, and I, I could only imagine yeah. you know, what's, what it's going on. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to judge, but there's some signs that I've seen through my experience with people who do that. And it, you know, sometimes they get very pale and not sure. off just, yeah. Sure. So, um, but yeah, yeah. Um, so kind of, kind of working, kind of play, uh, uh, going off of the idea of addiction here. Um, one of the questions that I want to ask is um, uh, what can uh, sort of the, the family and the friends of patients sort of look for and see uh, if they, if they do suspect that, I mean, say that, say that they're aware 
maybe of like in, let's let's assume it's in the context of workers comp um and you know they were prescribed something they are you know reaching mmi they're, they're getting better they're reaching their maximal medical improvement or what have you um and they're prescribed these things and maybe they're not maybe they're not being prescribed anymore but perhaps they are getting it somehow what can people look for that that might indicate that there's something more afoot well, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question. I think there's several different components to it. One is if your family member, a loved one, a coworker, or just somebody on the street walking by that guy nodding out on the mattress, yeah. I, th- I think there's a couple things to look for. Uh, yeah. Obviously, the person yeah. on the street nodding out with the needle next to them, mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty clear. Yeah. And there are, in most larger urban centers, numbers that you can call um, to get these folks help. You know, mm-hmm. we don't know if they're nodding out or if they're going into respiratory failure. Mm. So if one of your listeners notices somebody who's lying on the street looking pale, it might be good to call 911. Absolutely. Because, in fact, most people only change after a crisis. Mm. And you might be catching that person during a crisis. Sure, mm. they might wake up and be okay and continue on their life. Mm. But if you catch them at a point where they're looking like they're about to die, mm. that's usually a pretty good uh, statement um, that causes people to pause mm. and reflect upon, am I doing what I should be doing in life? Oftentimes, opioid addicts are so far gone, it's really hard for them to imagine living without these mm. drugs, and that might not do it. But oftentimes, you know, in a time of crisis, that's mm. when you can get people to change. And additionally, if that 911 call leads them to the emergency room, it's very likely that they're going to get some medication, mm. um, perhaps naltrexone, perhaps antabuse, you know, something, not antabuse, but that's for alcohol. Mm. But, um, and that will reverse the opioids, mm. prevent them from dying. It'll also throw them into a horrific withdrawal. Oh. They, they may feel like they're going to die, but they're not going to die. Opioid withdrawal actually is pretty darn safe. People feel horrible. Horrible, horrible, but they're not going to die. And in that state of feeling horrible, they may be more susceptible to look at other ways of living. Mm. If somebody feels terrific, it's really hard for me to change their behaviors or their ideas about how to live. But when they're feeling horrible in the ER coming off of opioids, boy, they're open to anything. Now, usually what they want are some opioids to stop the withdrawal because they're very aware of what's happening to them. But within that context, I can also talk to them about ways that they won't have to go through this again. And it might be putting them on maintenance therapy of Suboxone or Methadone uh, and getting them into counseling, which certainly helps people. If it's in another context, the more subtle context of people using medications from their physicians, or as you said, perhaps getting them from somebody else, but they're actually pills that you would normally prescribe, they might not look so bad as that individual on the mattress with the needle there. They might just seem a little bit more fuzzy. They may, and and what people notice in families is they just start to fail to fulfill their obligations at work or school Mm. or at home Mm. uh, due to the opioid use or the seeking out of opioids because they Mm. constantly have to have a supply. They may put off other important uh, obligations, activities activities because they're searching out the opioids. And in fact, when you start talking to these folks, they start giving up the importance of these social, occupational, or recreational activities, they just aren't as important as that need to get their next fix. Yeah. They also, um, besides looking perhaps more out of it, a little bit more glazed, a little slower to respond to questions, 
um, uh, people might know, start noticing withdrawals. If folks are looking shaky and sweaty and nauseous and uh, having lots of diarrhea and you start noticing a family member in this way, mm. it might not be the flu. They might be actually going through withdrawals. Uh, these people in withdrawal really do isolate themselves because they become very irritable. Yeah. So even noticing a family member being very happy, maybe a little out of it, and then in the next 12 hours becoming really irritable, you know, mm-hmm. watching this sort of roller coaster, you might begin to suspect some type of substance abuse that they're becoming intoxicated on and then subsequently withdrawing on, which is where they get the more irritability. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are really, I think the difficulty is, is that we don't, we want to close our eyes and put the head in the sand a lot of times because everybody's lives are busy. Yeah. And um, it's sometimes difficult to admit that, that we or our loved ones or somebody we know has an opioid problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cause it's uh, a lot of people that don't know about it will say, well, I I didn't know anything about it. You know, I, I, I've heard, I've heard somebody say, um, I heard somebody say, Oh, I've, I never suspected that this person could be on heroin. I always thought that heroin made you jump off of roofs. That's exactly what they said. And, uh, so they don't, you know, yeah. And I think not only within the medical community, well, I actually think not only within the regular community, but within the medical community, we're really biased. We believe that opioids are evil. And I think that's one of the, the problems that is associated with a lot of the media coverage regarding the, quote, opioid crisis. Yeah. In regards to, in regards to let me kind of a little tangent, in regards mm-hmm. to the, even the term opioid crisis, I would like it to be changed to the opioid slash chronic pain crisis. Mm. You know, yeah. because really people don't take opioids for nothing when they're prescribed. Yeah. I mean, they may, but it's usually that they started off with a lot of chronic pain. Yes. And so when you're dealing with chronic pain, you also have a decreased functioning, you have more irritability, Mm. and you have a lot of the things that you might see with opioid addiction. Mm. And, you know, if you ask somebody, what's your biggest problem, they never say, I'm addicted to morphine or Oxycontin or, or heroin for my pain. Although usually people using for pain control are seeing a, a doctor or at least taking those meds as opposed to heroin. Yeah, um, yeah, they'll yeah. always say I have chronic pain. And when yeah. my medications get out of my system, my pain's so bad, I can't do anything. Yes. Yes. And, and so it's really impossible to treat one without the other. And we have this misconception that if we just stop prescribing or stop people from taking these medications, that they'll be fine. Yeah. Which, but they're not. No, no. In some ways, they're very, they're much more dysfunctional. And there's even a higher, although the number of deaths from opioid, uh, especially heroin, has been uh, going up. Now we're at about 120 people die a day from opioid overdose. Yeah. Uh, the vast majority of these are not due to pain treatment though per se Uh it's not a doctor prescribing medicines people do overtake medicines and people do overdose on medications physicians give them but a lot of this has been driven especially the spike in the addition of those synthetic analogs and that's why people are overdosing more but more to the fact is how do you tell somebody who's in chronic pain for a real reason yes you know how do you tell them we can't give you the medicine that is causing you to be functional. Yes. 
which is where it very much complicates things. It does. And it's really looking at the risks and the benefits because there are some, there's some real risks to giving people opioid medications for pain. There's side effects. People, if they add alcohol or other medicines such as benzodiazepines like Valium or Ativan mm-hmm. or Clonopin or Xanax, they mm-hmm. can have respiratory failure and die even though they didn't mean to overdose. Yes. Also, opioids cause a lot of constipation. There's, there's a lot of side effects to opioid medications. However, the problems that people describe having due to their chronic pain without these medicines are just as horrific. Yeah. If okay. not more so. That is something that a lot of people who are removed from the situation don't consider. That's, uh, that's right. Mm-hmm. So you really got to, I mean, there's the opioid addiction, which looks like tolerance. I got to take more and more and more. They're avoiding all their um, daily activities because they're running out and seeking these opioids. Yeah. And, um, you know, the amount that they need to get high, so to speak, is getting closer to the amount that would cause them to overdose. All of these are horrific problems. Yes. Um, but how do you then treat the chronic pain that people have? And I know that most of the people say things like, well, exercise, well, diet, um, you know, yoga, meditation, and all of those are fantastic Mm. to those not addicted to opioids. Yeah, yeah. Because opioid withdrawal, and then on top of that, the chronic pain they're left at with that baseline completely overwhelms their ability to even start doing anything those things. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell someone with a, you know, like a constant condition that needs their body in a brace to do yoga. You know, it's not physically feasible for them to do that. So not, not usually. Now the thing is, is it sort of a, you know, it's the middle road. It's a very Mm. Buddhist way of (laughs) treating people these days. You know, you want to try to integrate all of these things into their uh, usual activities while they're still taking the opioids. You know, I will prescribe this, but I need to see you at the gym. I will prescribe this, but we need to try some other things too. You need to exercise, you need to diet, you need to see a physical therapist, you need to, you know, so it's, it's really kind of slowly coming down off the medicines or at least using some of the medications that like methadone or buprenorphine that don't seem to cause as much, um, decrease in their ability to do daily activities Mm -hmm. um, rather than heroin or something. Yeah. 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 So that so that kind of leads me to to this this question um, that I'm legitimately curious about. What is I don't know what kind of lies on the on the horizon in terms of of future treatments. I mean, is there anything that's sort of in the works or or um, that might be sort of the replacement? Something that will be just as effective as opioids without having the sort of uh, you know, sort of the, the stigma or the side effects or the very real life consequences of, of things. I've seen, you know, there's there's a huge even even out here where um, out here where in in Philadelphia where I am where there's uh, medical marijuana is only for almost basically terminal illnesses. CBD has taken you know taken off, and and I I know several people who actually swear by it who do have awful conditions. But you know, is there anything else that that might yeah. I'm glad you asked. That's, that's, a, that's a good question. And, and in fact, there are, and I think the number one thing I sort of alluded to before, it's removing some of the stigma. Mm. Right now, you know, someone who uses heroin is bad. Mm. That's the mm-hmm. way a lot of physicians think. Mm-hmm. They won't necessarily admit it, but they're mm-hmm. going to be treated differently than somebody who came in with a broken leg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of that, a lot has, of, to do, a lot yeah, of that has to do with the fact that it's illegal. 
Yeah. Well, that's true. But I also see people in the medical ER who come in who uh, their physician is on vacation. They can't prescribe them their methadone or they can't prescribe them their, their Oxycontin that they need to take every day because of their chronic back injury and the back injury and back pain. Yeah. And they come into the ER and they get treated very poorly because they feel people feel like these people are what's called malingering which means lying to get something lying yeah. to get housing lying to get food or lying to get opioids yeah. and the truth is is that most of these people are not even the people that are lying are still having a bad problem but mm. they know that they can't just come in and tell the truth because they'll be treated poorly yeah okay. okay so the first thing is removing the stigma you know a flu should be treated the same way well not with the same medication yeah but <laughs> with the same kind of respect as somebody coming in with with heroin overdose heroin addiction or withdrawal we yes. need to look at it as a as a problem that these people are facing and it's a biopsychosocial problem there's biological factors psychological factors mm. and social factors mm. and if you just throw a pill at somebody you're going to miss the other two you'll hit the biology maybe but you got to take a look at who they are the world that they're living in and how they're relating to it Mm. And along those same lines, you know, I, I actually posed this question to one of my patients today. I had two patients today that are treated with chronic um, opioids for various conditions and have mm. other things going on. But one of them um, who was in the past, he, he's a gentleman with a, a chronic medical condition that gives him chronic joint pain. Yes. And he in the past was a heroin addict um, before he kind of realized what that was. He was treating his pain, but heroin worked and nobody was prescribing him. Yeah. So he, he laughed because he said, you're never going to get rid of these drugs. People are always going to take these drugs. Mm -hmm. What you got to do, and this is his opinion, I have mixed thoughts about it, is set up centers where people can go and get their heroin, but right there are also people to treat them for the addiction if they want. So whether they have vending machines, you know, a quarter for mm -hmm. a, a clean needle, yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe whatever, I don't know what the heroin would cost, but you go in and buy your heroin or some other opioid that might satisfy those receptors and that need, whether mm -hmm. it's pain or some other, maybe perhaps psychological issue that you're decreasing the pain around. Yes. Perhaps you can come in and look at this. We have, we have choices and there's an educated individual there to say, well, of course there's heroin, but there's also methadone. There's buprenorphine. We have counseling services. Mm -hmm. We have this. So in an ideal world, Mm. we wouldn't stigmatize any of this stuff. No. We'd look at it as a way people are coping, maybe not the best way people are coping, just like yeah. drinking or yeah. smoking or, you know, sitting on the couch, binge yeah. watching episode after episode yeah. of someone yeah. on television. Yeah. Your ben and Jerry's ice cream, you know, that's yeah. another little drug right there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. Yeah. Um, I'm, fe I'm it, actually fiending for that right now. But. Well, you know, it's easy. It's easy too because it's yeah. so delicious. And for a little while, you feel really good. But yeah. if you eat a whole pint, yeah. you're not going to feel so yeah. good. And over time, it'll have bad effects too. Yes. So how do we look at these things non-judgmentally and provide care for it? Yes. And I think I would be the future is, is looking at these things in a non-biased way. You know, if somebody has a flu, if somebody has a heroin addiction, there's specific clinics to go to. Now, these clinics might be the ones offering the heroin to you, but that would have a choice also, wouldn't they? Here's your heroin, which we know is actually heroin and not yes. laced with fentanyl or something else. Yes. Or here's your methadone, or here's your buprenorphine, uh, and here's your counseling services, all yes. in, under one roof where there's clean needles, etc. Yes. You know, the way we've been doing it is a punitive approach. And I think that's the first thing we always do. Mm -hmm. You know, in medicine, we try to 
from from where, whenever we we purge out the bad humors, you know, we bloodlet and we mm. we have leeches and we yeah, <laughs> you know we try yeah, to yeah. get out the bad stuff yeah, by yeah. punishing almost the individual to get it out of them. Yeah. I think that's the the old style of medicine we've been practicing in regards to substance abuse. You know, a punitive approach. Uh, kind of isolating these people further from the rest of society yeah, as yeah. opposed to treating them with a chronic illness, which is really what they have. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, I, I could only imagine how, you know, in, in the world or in the, in the best case scenario that you describe, you know, how nice it would be for somebody who is aware that they have a problem, can't admit it to anybody to actually go to a place where they feel welcomed uh, or, or, you know, the, where they feel that, they're compassionate people who see them for what is happening and not who they are through the lens of what they've been taught to think through the medical community, through, through sort of like the, the way that they've read about it in articles and everything. And if I understand correctly, um, there are, oh gosh, I'm, I'm going to totally blow it if I even try to guess what country it is, but there are countries that have legalized Sure, Copen- Copenhagen, mm. you know, a lot of places have done this. You know, the, w- I just want to kind of uh, go off of what you were saying. It mm. would be a wonderful world, and I've actually seen it happen. I've seen it with HIV and AIDS. Mm. That was highly, highly stigmatized in the 80s, mm. uh, you know, right after I was done with training there. And, and, and it was hard to get a lot of physicians to even address a lot of the difficulties patients with HIV were having and not as much in San Francisco and New York and some of the major metropolitan centers, but in the Midwest and a lot of other places, people were really frightened. But now, and especially since there are some actual treatments that seem to be pretty good, folks in the medical community are much more accepting of these people in their clinics and in their practice. And I think that there's probably numerous examples of a disease state that was really frightening for folks that has since become a little bit more accepted and um, people are more at ease talking about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I can only hope that that's where we can take it. You know, I I really hope that we can, we can see people, you know, people being able to realize that maybe that's what it takes for a lot of people to, to sort of kind of weed themselves off of it is just knowing that they're, they're not, had for you know that's not wrong that, that they've done this exactly and, and depression's another example i think you know it's still all of these things are still stigmatized to a certain yes. degree but people are much more apt to take antidepressants and to see physicians about moods that yeah. in the past people would say well pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just yeah. get going yeah I, I think with any of these maybe people need chronic opioid supplementation to help them through methadone, buprenorphine, or mm. other medications. Mm-hmm. And, and that's okay, since we now have the ability to do that and mm. help people lead a little bit more comfortable, productive lives. Dr. Patel, um, I was wondering if you actually have any sort of closing comments or thoughts, um, just sort of on the general milieu of what we're talking about, the, the opioid crisis, um, you know, if, if you have any anything to say for the listeners out there who might, you know, just, just sort of be here and, and be uninformed or know a little bit about it, but they just want to hear more. I know I just gave you a lot there. But. Yeah, that's, that's okay. There's, <laughs> there's a lot out there regarding this. Yeah. Well, in regards to opioids specifically, I, I, I actually want to move away from opioids specifically and talk yeah. about medications in general, you know, yeah. medications, drugs, uh, they're all drugs. Yes. And there's, they're not really good or bad. 
Yeah. It's not like they're born being heroin and bad or born being penicillin and being good. Used in the correct way, all of these are very valuable. And used in the incorrect way, even vitamins can kill you. People mm. overdose on water. Yes. So, so there's, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's ways anything can be good and bad. And I think this is one instance which I'm hoping, and I tend to be a little more optimistic, that the attention that it's getting in the press is going to allow medical practitioners, politicians, and other folks to take a hard look at really what happens within people that are addicted to opioid medications and maybe even change the language. Because I think, as I alluded yes. to, it's not a crisis in opioids. Opioids have been around for thousands of years. Yes. It's more of a crisis in educating healthcare professionals and the lay popul- um, populace in mm-hmm. regards to when people are having trouble with those. Yes. Just as if people are having trouble with gambling, having trouble with alcohol, with whatever they may be doing. Those seem to have places where people can go and are a little bit more accepted. Heroin seems to be still pretty nasty in most people's minds. And because of that, folks are reluctant to get on board in helping their um, helping their family members. And yes. politicians are quick to say that's the evil over there. Yes, yes. So I, I just hope people kind of look at uh, opioid use as, as normal for folks that need it and are able to recognize when that use becomes out of control and needs to be attended to. Well, I want to thank you for coming on to the show today, Dr. Patel. That that was very informative for, for me, and I'm sure everybody listening has quite a bit of information to glean off of that. And I really do hope that it begins to change people's sort of construct around what, what they think about addiction and the addicts themselves and everything. So yeah, again, I want to thank you for coming to the show today. Well, thank you very much for having me on. If you or someone you know is suffering from opioid abuse or addiction, please pick up the phone and call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 1-800-622-HELP or visit www.samhsa.gov. It is a confidential, free service. You are not in this alone. And for more about RateFast products and services, like RateFast Express, visit rate-fast.com and visit our blog at blog.rate-fast.com.